Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Tuesday, November 8th, 2022. First story at the top of Antiwar.com today. The Pentagon expects wartime purchasing powers. So Bill LaPlante, he's the Pentagon's chief weapons buyer, the head of acquisition. He said that he expects Congress to grant the authority to allow wartime purchasing power at a level not seen since the Cold War. And this was uh, Defense News reported this on Monday. To continue arming Ukraine, LaPlante has been calling for the Pentagon to be granted the authority to lock in multi-year contracts for weapons purchases. And this is usually uh, reserved for procuring naval vessels and warplanes, so big, um, more advanced military equipment. But they're looking for this authority for the smaller arms that they've been sending to Ukraine. And the idea is to give the arms makers the incentive to really ramp up production. So if they put in a multi-year order, they're going to really increase their production levels. So the Senate has added an amendment to its version of the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act to grant the Pentagon this authority. It would allow the Pentagon to make multi-year purchases through 2023 and 2024 of certain arms made by Lockheed Martin, uh, BAE Systems, Kongsberg Defense and Aerospace, and Raytheon, which is the former employer of Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. The Senate is expected to vote on its version of the NDAA sometime this month, and it will then negotiate the final version of the spending bill with the House. And LaPlante, he expects this wartime purchasing powers to make it into the final version, they're expecting to get this authority. So he said this on Friday. He said, quote, they are supportive of this. They're going to give us multi-year authority and they're going to give us funding to really put into the industrial base. And I'm talking billions of dollars into the industrial base to fund these production lines. That, I predict, is going to happen and it's happening now. And then people will have to say, I guess they were serious about it, but we have not done that since the Cold War, end quote. Excuse me. So when the NDAA amendment was first reported, I I covered it. And something that really stuck out to me from that report, which was also from Defense News, um, a senior congressional aide that they quoted that spoke on the condition of anonymity said that the authority would also be used to prepare for war with China. It's not just about arming Ukraine. And this aide said, quote, we can't pussyfoot around with minimum sustaining rate buys of these munitions. It's hard to think of something as high on everybody's list as buying a ton of munitions for the next few years for our operational plans against China and continuing to supply Ukraine, end quote. So he said, for our operational plans against China. And the Senate's NDAA, it also includes an amendment um, that would give Taiwan $10 billion in military aid over the next five years, which would be an unprecedented uh, thing for Taiwan. And while this number still needs to be finalized in negotiations with the House, there's a strong bipartisan consensus for stepping up support for Taiwan um, so it's likely going to get through in, in, on some level, uh, whether it's $10 billion or not, we don't know for sure yet. But both of these things are expected to make it through. 
And it's just another example of how the arms makers and, and Lloyd Austin's pals at Raytheon are just really cashing in on this policy of arming Ukraine and also escalating tensions with China. Uh, okay, so the next one here, Finland's president says there are no plans to host NATO nuclear weapons. So this comes after Finnish officials have said that they're not ruling out the idea of hosting NATO nuclear weapons. And Sweden said that too. But this uh, president of Finland is saying that uh, right now there's no signs that they're going to be asked to host NATO nuclear weapons, which he's probably right uh, that they're not going to try to deploy if they join NATO, that NATO's not just going to try to put nuclear weapons in Finland right away. Finland shares an over 800 mile border with Russia. It would be a huge provocation uh, because right now, as the policy stands, uh, there are no nuclear weapons deployed in countries that join NATO after the Cold War. So there's nothing uh, east of Germany. But the policy could always change. And, you know, uh, looking to the future, if Finland and Sweden do join, you know, there, there's no telling that somewhere down the line they could eventually host nuclear weapons. Poland has is looking to host uh, U.S. nuclear weapons and says that it has had conversations about the idea with the U.S. So things could change because right now it's not east of Germany. Um, and now while the Finnish president said Finland has no plans to host nukes, again, uh, fin Finland's prime minister, Sanna Marin, and her Swedish counterpart, Ulf Kristersson, who's the new Swedish prime minister, they both said last week uh, at a joint press conference together that they would not set preconditions for joining NATO when asked about nuclear weapons. Marin said that she did not want to close any doors when she was asked about the issue. And Christensen said that the two Nordic nations will act jointly on the issue. Um, so they are saying things like that, which in itself is pretty provocative toward Russia. Um but as things stand right now, both Sweden and Finland are still waiting approval from Turkey and Hungary to join. They're the only two alliance members that have not given, whose legislatures have not approved on them joining. And we know Turkey signed this deal with Sweden and Finland to join the alliance. That they're, uh, it, It's basically about Turkey says that Sweden and Finland are supporting the PKK, which is a Kurdish militant group that Turkey considers a terrorist organization and, and their affiliates. Um, that seems to be the main sticking point. They want Sweden to extradite suspected PKK members and things like that. And Turkey, you know, they've still been saying, even with this new government, that they're not happy. So there's a chance that they could block them from joining. Um, um, but we'll see how that all unfolds. Okay, so the next one here. So Ukraine has used uh, wartime powers to seize what they called strategic companies. So it's interesting, kind of, you see the U.S. is looking to get wartime powers to buy more weapons, spend more on military. And here Ukraine is using their wartime powers to seize companies. So Ukraine announced this on Monday, and this is as the government of President Zelensky, that it continues to consolidate power under martial law that was declared when Russia first invaded. So the, the Ukrainian government seized control of five companies, including the country's top oil producer and an aircraft engine maker. The companies were controlled by some of Ukraine's wealthiest and most powerful businessmen. And according to Reuters and other reports that I read about this, 
Zelensky's government has long sought to curb their political power. Um, so Ukrainian Defense Minister Oleski Reznikov, he said, quote, as of today, the specified assets are managed on behalf of the state and in the interests of the entire security sector to meet the needs of the armed forces and the entire defense sector, end quote. Ukraine's Prime Minister, Denis Shmyhal, he said that the companies were seized using the power that the government was granted in response to Russia's February 24th invasion. So after declaring martial law at the beginning of the war, Zelensky, he prohibited men between the ages of 18 and 60 from leaving the country. He banned opposition parties and he nationalized the media. So most of that happened pretty early on. um, And here we're seeing more of that power being used. And it amounts to the most dramatic government intervention into Ukrainian businesses since the start of the war. Oleski Danilov, he is the secretary of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council. He's insisting that these assets will be returned after the war. He said, quote, after martial law is lifted, these assets may be returned to their owners or their value may be reimbursed, end quote. Um, But, you know, we'll see uh, if that happens. But um, it's pretty significant, I think, you know, the country's top oil producer that uh, I guess was uh, private and not state state run like uh, the state gas company. Um, All right. So the next one here, the Kremlin says that it has nothing to say about reported talks with Jake Sullivan. So the Kremlin on Monday, they said they had nothing to say about a report from the Wall Street Journal that said U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan held secret talks with senior Russian officials in recent months. The report said that Sullivan held talks with his Russian counterpart, Nikolai Petrushev, and Yuri Yuzhikov, who is a foreign policy advisor to Putin. It said that Sullivan warned the Russians against using nuclear weapons and that the talks were focused on avoiding an escalation that could turn the war in Ukraine into a wider conflict. But the details still are not confirmed as the Kremlin, as the Kremlin declined to comment. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said, quote, we have nothing to say about this publication, end quote. Uh, the White House also declined to comment on the specifics of the report, but they did say that there have been high-level talks with Russia in recent months. So this is from White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. She said, quote, we reserve the right to speak directly at senior levels about issues of concern to the United States. That has happened over the course of the past few months. Our conversations have focused only on risk reduction in the U.S.-Russia relationship, end quote. So Jean-Pierre made clear that the conversations did not explore the idea of a potential ceasefire in Ukraine. She said, quote, we continue to adhere to our basic principle of nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine, end quote. So Biden, other U.S. officials have said that they're not going to negotiate the war about the war with Russia without Ukraine. That's been their stance. That's been their position. Um, even though they're so involved in it and Ukraine is entirely reliant on support from the U S to keep fighting this war. And the white house has previously said that it would not push Ukraine to negotiate. Although over the weekend, the Washington post reported that the U S was hoping Ukraine would change its public stance on negotiations 
But it, they, the report said it was for public relations purposes and not actually to pursue diplomacy. So we'll get on more on that in the next story here. But Peskov, he also declined to comment on that report. And he said, quote, once again, I repeat that there are some truthful reports, but for the most part, there are reports that are pure speculation, end quote. Um, so Russia's just not saying much about these uh, reports that we saw over the weekend. Uh, but the next one here is Ukraine's sort of response to that one, that the U.S. was privately encouraging them to change their public stance on negotiations. And their public stance is that they will not negotiate with Russia as long as Putin is president, um, which is essentially a call for regime change um, before any diplomacy can happen. So Ukraine reaffirmed that it's that's their position on Monday. Uh, an advisor to Zelensky reaffirmed this, saying that Ukraine would not negotiate with Russia as long as Putin is president. So this is Mikhailo Podolyak. He wrote on Twitter that Ukraine has, he's claiming that Ukraine has never refused to negotiate and that its terms for negotiation were a fur were for a full Russian withdrawal. He said, quote, is Putin ready? Obviously not. Therefore, we are constructive in our assessment. We will talk with the next leader, end quote. Um, so again, his comments come after the Washington Post report said that the U.S. want them to change this position. And it said that, um, again, that in this report, it said that they didn't want Ukraine. The idea wasn't actually to, to spur talks between Ukraine and Russia. They just want to ease concerns of some of Ukraine's backers that, you know, could, because especially in Europe, uh, the countries that are supporting Ukraine in this war, that are really dealing with these super high energy prices. Um, they're getting concerned that this war is just going to drag on and on and on. And, and Ukraine's public position of no talks, um, you know, I think is definitely raising some concerns. Uh and at the beginning of October, Zelensky signed a decree that formalized this position that they're not going to talk to Russia while Putin is president. CNN reported on Monday that so Jake Sullivan, he went to Kiev last week. And according to a CNN report, he discussed this issue directly with Zelensky. Um, but these comments on Monday, you know, if this pressure, if they're really who knows if they're really pressuring them or just mentioning it to them. Um, you know, who knows how true exactly all this stuff is. It's just strange that they would put that in the Washington Post and also say, but we don't actually really want diplomacy. But maybe it's because diplomacy, calling for diplomacy has become such an uh, unpopular opinion in Washington that maybe that's why they're saying that they that's not what they actually want. But I don't know. But um so while Ukraine has hardened its stance on negotiations, Putin and other Russian officials, as I've been covering in recent weeks, have stressed that they're open to talks with both Ukraine and the West and the U.S. Um, and the U.S., these reports say that the U.S. thinks it looks bad for Ukraine not to be open to negotiations while Russia is saying that it is. They're saying, it. oh, it plays into the Russian uh, narrative that Ukraine doesn't want to talk um, so we'll see, you know, if Ukraine does make any changes in this, in this direction, but right now it does not seem like it. 
Um, okay, so the next one here, this is from Jason Ditz. The U.S. sets up a new military base in northeast Syria, another sign that there's no plans for the U.S. to leave Syria. So a number of U.S. troops and logistic forces have been arriving in the Syrian city of Raqqa recently and are in the process of establishing a new military base in the area. The location makes some sense, though no official announcement was made yet. The U.S. has an estimated 1,000 troops left in Syria and 28 declared military sites, which is a lot. They're mostly in this province, uh, the Haseka province. Um, So the timing is telling, however, because just one week ago, the U.S. said that that they have no plans to withdraw from Syria. That was from John Kirby. He's the National Security Council spokesman. And there is an ISIS presence around Raqqa. It's mostly uh, lingering remnant forces, as Jason put it. Uh, it's small. Uh, it's really just, um, you know, they're scattered throughout the desert. Uh, they don't have any real territory. Um, but those forces often end up fighting Syrian and Russian troops, uh, and sometimes the Kurdish YPG, which is who the U.S. backs. So the U.S. has about 1,000 troops in eastern Syria, They back the Kurdish forces there, and they occupy a pretty good chunk uh, just with the 1,000 troops by backing the Kurds, a pretty good chunk of Syria. They say it's about one-third. If you look at a map, it does look like it's about one-third of the country that the U.S. controls. Um, And besides the U.S. occupation, the U.S. also maintains really harsh, brutal sanctions on Syria, specifically uh, that target the country's construction and energy sectors because they want to prevent them from rebuilding. They're trying to prevent reconstruction. Anthony Blinken has actually said that, that that's the purpose until there is a change in the government in Damascus. So it's essentially a policy of regime change. They want Assad to, to go, even though at this point he's not. And, and I think they know that, but it's still their policy is just to punish the country. Um, and it's a pretty brutal policy, and they're just slowly expanding. You know, these bases are pretty small, probably, that they're establishing, but it's just a sign that it's really entrenched. And um, this presence is also supported by the U.S. presence in Iraq, where there's about 2,500 troops. So as long as there's troops in Syria, there's going to be troops in Iraq. Um, and... Part of the U.S. presence in Northeast Syria is they control the area where most of the country's oil resources are. You know, when Trump decided to stay in Syria, he said they were going to stay to take the oil, to secure the oil. And now there's always reports about uh, oil, U.S. military convoys shipping oil out of Syria into Iraq. So, yeah, it's really just... um, it shows that they don't care about a country's territorial integrity, as President Biden is always saying. It really shows a hypocrisy. All right, the next one here. Uh, the U.S. says that 15 al-Shabaab fighters were killed in a Somalia airstrike. So another U.S. airstrike in Somalia. Um, I actually wrote this yesterday, but I skipped over it, um, which is okay because today was a little slow. I, we think because... Uh, the elections and stuff. That's what most of the media is focused on. Um, but anyway, so U.S. Africa Command, they said on Saturday that it conducted an airstrike against Al-Shabaab in Somalia on November 3rd. 
as U.S. operations in the country continue to escalate. So AFRICOM said that the strike killed at least 15 Al-Shabaab fighters. So that's a pretty uh, significant amount of people they're saying that they killed. And it was carried out in uh, near a coastal town in the southern middle Shabelle region of Somalia. AFRICOM claimed that the strike was carried out in collective self-defense in support of the U.S.-backed Mogadishu-based government, which has stepped up its operations against Al-Shabaab in recent months. In recent months, under President Biden's drone strike policy, which he recently formalized, uh, strikes outside of Syria and Iraq they need White House approval, unless they are said to be in self-defense of a U.S. partner for of the U.S. or a partner force. Strikes could also be justified if they they target a person that's on a kill list that's approved by the president. So if they have a list of people that Biden's already approved that could be killed, then they could launch that without getting White House approval. And there was a strike recently in Somalia where they said they killed an Al-Shabaab leader that was apparently on this list. Uh, But the Somali government wants the U.S. to loosen this policy. They want the U.S. to expand its strikes in Somalia. And the U.S. is reportedly considering escalating the war in Somalia even further. So U.S. airstrikes in the country, they initially declined under President Biden, but they have been increasing since he ordered the deployment of up to 500 troops to Somalia in May. AFRICOM claimed that no civilians have been killed in in the recent strikes, but it's always important to stress that the Pentagon is notorious for undercounting civilian casualties, especially in Somalia. Whenever any kind of uh, journalist, uh, like um, human rights organization, uh, something like that gets to the scene of a U.S. airstrike in Somalia, it's usually a much different story than what AFRICOM uh, is telling. So um, who knows really how what's going on on the ground there. But there are definitely big battles going on between Al-Shabaab and the government that the U.S. backs because um, they have launched offensives against Al-Shabaab recently. And there's been a lot of Al-Shabaab attacks against them. And in Mogadishu, it looks like uh, things are really ramping up there. And the U.S. is really ramping up its war there. Um, all right, so the last news story, this is about this is about Israeli Israel's election. And Ben Gavir, who is this really uh, far-right extremist that is uh, part of this it looks like is going to be part of this new coalition government led by Benjamin Netanyahu. So this is from Middle East Eye. They do a pretty good job of covering Israeli politics. So the far-right Israeli lawmaker Itamar Ben-Gvir is set to demand tougher conditions for Palestinian security prisoners as well as unfettered access for settlers in Al-Aqsa Mosque during informal coalition talks with Likud party chief Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, So these talks were expected to happen on Monday, and this is according to Israeli media. So Netanyahu's bloc won 64 seats out of 120 in last week's election in Israel, and they're expected to form a government with uh, two ultra-Orthodox parties as well as Ben Gavir's far-right religious Zionism. Um, It's an alliance between the party of religious Zionism and Atzma, Yehudit. So during last year's election cycle, Netanyahu said that Ben Gavir, who used to keep a picture of Baruch Goldstein, who massacred 29 Palestinians in a mosque in 1994 in his home, 
Uh, Netanyahu used to say he was not fit to be a minister. But as his popularity has grown, Netanyahu has changed tack and conceded that he could serve in a potential cabinet. So Ben Gavir is expected to demand the position of public security minister in a co- in any coalition with Likud. Uh, he was also expected to present Netanyahu a comprehensive plan that revolves around how the Israeli prison authority deals with Palestinian security prisoners, including imposing increased restrictions on them. So he really wants to crack down on Palestinians more. And from some other reports that I read, he wants to uh, loosen kind of the rules of engagement in the West Bank, which, I mean, I don't know if they could even really be loosened any more than they are, uh, but really um, um, just not looking good for the Palestinians. If this guy's going to have power and influence over the new government, which it seems like he is. There were some reports that said the U.S. wouldn't want to deal with the government that he was a part of, but I mean... I don't see the Biden administration having the backbone to really, uh, you know, try to stand up to a Israeli government. <clears throat> um, anyway, that's the uh, news for today. And we have a lot of good viewpoints, as always. One actually about about this uh, thing I was just talking about from Jonathan Cook, the extreme right in Netanyahu's government would will not dent Western support. So he gets a little more in depth there. Uh, w. James Antle, responsible statecraft about kind of our asking if Republicans are really poised to put the brakes on Ukraine aid. I don't think overall that they are, but I think there's definitely uh, a strong Republican minority that wants to stop sending aid to Ukraine, but I don't think it's big enough to really uh, expect it. Um, but yeah, so go check that stuff out. And there's also, we link to one to Consortium News from Chris Hedges. So, yeah, that's it for me for today. Um, again, a lot of a lot of the news today and, and uh, on Tuesday and probably as Wednesday is going to be all about uh, the election stuff. So, but anyway, um, I'll catch you tomorrow with some more news. You could um, share the show if you like it. Subscribe on YouTube, Odyssey Rumble if you want the video. Download it wherever you listen to podcasts, leave reviews and all that good stuff, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for listening.